Right, I think I could use a little help from uh, some children. Like, I don't know, can you put your hands up if you've ever moved house that you can remember? Can you ever m remember moving house? Now, can you tell me some of the things, if you're looking for a new home, what are kind of good things to look for in a new home? Can you think of anything that makes a new home the sort of place that you might want to choose to live? Any ideas? Yeah. A big garden. Oh yeah, that sounds lovely. Yeah, good idea. Yes. Gems. Gems? Oh, okay, yeah. If you found treasure, like if your house has a basement or something. I, I'm not sure that's marketed on many um, websites, but very good, yeah. Sorry? Somewhere safe, yes, yeah, you absolutely want your house to be somewhere safe. That's an excellent answer. In fact, I'll probably come back to that. Yeah. Not individuals nowhere, because if you don't have shops, then you can't do anything. Yeah, yeah, you need shops around, don't you? Yeah, where, where your house... That's one of the reasons why I quite like living, actually, because you kind of you have access to loads of places from there. Yeah. A bedroom to sleep in. A bedroom to sleep in, yeah, the right number of rooms, ideas. All these are really good ideas. So, thinking about what you've just said, would you want to live on, say, a house like one of these? Can you see that one, uh, that one, that one? Can you just about see them? I think they're on the east coast of um, England. Would, would you want to live on a, in a house like one of those? I'm, I'm hearing some no's. <laughs> You're saying, yeah, it's not safe, your point earlier, yeah. So, can you see, why, why, why are you looking at that and saying, oh, I don't think that's safe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're just like, they're on the edge of a cliff, aren't they? And I'll give you a clue, they're, they're not meant to be. Like that, that, the sea has just eroded that back and back and back until those houses, they're now on a cliff edge. And they're, so they're on like the brink of some sort of disaster, aren't they? Do you think you could sleep soundly in that uh, one of those houses? No. a strange mistake, wouldn't it? If you accidentally walked out the wrong door, um, yeah, that would, that, would, that would be a real shame. So yeah, you'd be, I don't think you'd want that sort of house, because you never knew when you might wake up and your house might look like that. Sadly, sadly does happen, doesn't it? So when we find somewhere to live, we want to know that where we're going to live will be safe, and somewhere uh, where we, yeah, where, where we can live kind of reasonably comfortably. But Jesus, when he writes this letter to the church, he's writing to people who are, they must feel like they're on the edge of disaster. Because it's not a safe place at all. And actually, children, I was wondering if you could help me one more time uh, for, for now. Which is, why do you think that this place that Jesus is writing to was not safe? All right, you, don't, you can come up with your own ideas if you want, or if you have Revelation chapter 2 open, then you could turn to verse 13, and that would give you a big clue, okay? So, up to you. Give it, you can give me your own ideas, or you can, uh, you can dig through that verse and tell me why do you think it might not have been safe where that church was? Any ideas? <laughs> Does anyone want to have a go? Yeah, what did you want to say? It's not, is it? 
right, yeah. So there are, there are those pictures on the cliff edge, but these people, they're on the edge of a different danger uh, in, in this uh, letter to the church. And I wonder if someone can tell me what that might be. Where Satan's throne is. Yeah, that's exactly right. That, that's the wording from verse 13, isn't it? I know... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm just turning the wrong page. Okay. Uh, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, that's a strange phrase, isn't it? But actually, what this, this place, Pergamum, where this church was, then that was the seat of the Roman Empire at the time. And Satan, he is the devil in the Bible, um, the, like God's enemy. But also that, that name, Satan, it just means, it, it means adversary or enemy. So it could be that he's talking about the devil... Like, this is the place where the devil is particularly active. Or it could be saying the enemy, the Roman Empire. Or it's probably actually a mix of the two, isn't it? Because the Roman Empire were kind of doing the devil's work. Um, and uh, in fact, this city, Pergamum, it was the place where they built the first temple for the official worship of the Roman Emperor instead of the true God, which is really sad, isn't it? Uh, that so, this place where their church was was becoming so dangerous. And in fact... So dangerous that someone in the church has died for their faith. So Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. So this church, they must have felt like they were on the brink of disaster. People had started dying, which sadly is something that people across the world, they know that feeling. I can't imagine that feeling, but other, other believers do know it. And so how do you think like, it would have felt for that church, in that circumstance, when they're struggling, to receive a letter from Jesus to say, I know where you live. I know your circumstances. I think that would be a big help, wouldn't it? To think, like, actually... When we read Jesus' story throughout the New Testament, it just strikes me that he's forever reinforcing the, the, with his disciples, I am here with you, or I will be here with you. In, in his actions, you know, his disciples, they go out on a stormy sea. You know, this story where Jesus is asleep in the boat, but, uh, and they're fearful for their lives in the storm, but as soon as Jesus is awake, then that fear is dispelled as Jesus calms the sea. He is with them, and so they are saved. Or when Peter tries to walk on water, and he, he goes a few steps and then begins to sink into the sea, and Jesus reaches out his hand and holds Peter safe. He is with Peter. He is with his people. And Jesus' words so often reinforce this as well. If we read John's Gospel and the teaching that Jesus gives about the Holy Spirit, and he's saying that I'm going to have to leave you in body, but don't worry because my Spirit will be with you. Jesus is just reinforcing this again and again. Whatever may come, I am with you. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, what is the final promise of Jesus to his disciples? He tells them to go out into all the world, and he says, surely I will be with you always, to the very end of the age. So, what a comfort there should be for the church in Pergamon as they receive this letter. And that's a comfort that we should know as well, isn't it? Because those promises... They are for all believers, for all time. And so, for the most persecuted church, apparently the church in North Korea of men, Jesus knows where they live. For our friends in ministry across the world, it's say in Turkey, 
Jesus knows where they live and their circumstances. Locally, if you live amongst antagonistic neighbours, or if there's friction in families, if you live in the midst of pain or suffering, oppression, hardship, whatever it may be, Jesus knows where you live. And he cares. He's not saying this to show off his knowledge, he's saying this to reinforce his care, because he's telling his people time and again, I know, I know where you live. As the uh, Christmas carol says, he feels for all our sadness, and he shares in our gladness. So, if you feel like you're on the brink, then hang on in there. And remember, Jesus is with you. He knows and sees you. So, as with most of the letters to the church, Jesus starts with this word of knowledge, and we kind of looked at that. But then he's going to go on, as, um, as is typical in these letters, with a word of rebuke, and then he's going to give them a word of promise. Now, you might think, oh, he's just acknowledged that some of them are dying. Could he not cut them some slack? Why has he got to go on and for, to give them a rebuke? Uh, and we kind of think that way, don't we, often? Like, and I think there's almost a lesson in that. You know, I've had a hard day. I've, it's excusable for me to be like uh, ratty with my family, to fail to show them the love that I should, that it should, to not be generous enough or whatever. We kind of do that trade-off with ourselves all the time, don't we? I've done so much in church. I don't need to like, do this or that. Like, uh, and we let ourselves off the hook. But Jesus, he's, he's just too insightful to do that. He's, not gonna, he's, he's going to warn them when they need warning. He, he's going to call them to it. Uh, he's going to rebuke them when they need it. He loves them too much to let that slide. And um, so what is the specific warning he gives to the church in Pergamon? Well, it's about false teaching. So he says, verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise you, have also, sorry, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so two false teachings are mentioned there. There may be a lot of overlap between the two. Sorry? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I thought you were signaling me, sorry. Um, right, uh, so there may be quite a bit of overlap between uh, the two uh, teachings. Well, let's address the second one mentioned first, the Nicolaitans. Just that first, because we basically know nothing about them, so that's quite straightforward, all right? So there's a false teaching. We don't know much about what it is. Uh, but the other one mentioned is this uh, teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Okay, so... Again, we don't know a lot about this. Balaam, he was a false prophet in um, the book of Numbers. So if you want to find out more about his story, you can go and look him up in the book of Numbers. Very interesting character. False prophet, but oddly used by God anyway. So, yeah, you can go and read it. Uh, we don't know all his antics and uh, how he led people astray, but there's something hinted at here, that he appears to have put on some sort of idol, fe idol feast, that kind of were encouraging the Israelites in, perhaps particularly uh, the young men, um, perhaps luring with Moabite women is sometimes speculated, um, and they would be quite riotous affairs by the looks of it, quite scandalous. And so here we have Balaam kind of holding out like, the, these kind of liberalities, if you like, 
and saying, yeah, come, come and worship in this way. This kind of looser, more fun way, uh, as it presumably it was held out. Uh, and I guess like, that's probably all too familiar in some ways in church life. We see people, we may know people, leaders or, church, or, or friends who have fallen away because they just got progressively kind of more liberal. Their, their, their ideas were too influenced by the things around now, children, I wonder if you could, uh, again, just relate to this. I think there's a, a, few, a few ways, perhaps, that we can be led astray, right? Led into doing the wrong thing. See if you can relate to this. Now, when I was... One of them is you could just be told to do something wrong or encouraged, egged on by your friends, right? So an example from my life, I've got to be careful because my parents are just here. Uh, but uh, when I was young and we used to play in the street, you know, I don't know, it's hard to imagine, but like, before Minecraft even, like, uh, and uh, we, we would play in the road, and, and sometimes... Like, Oh, yeah, I'm sure you can make your own roads in Minecraft, don't you? But if you actually couldn't make your own roads, you had to go and play in the actual road, in the actual outdoor. <laughs> then um, then uh, we would come up with sometimes quite naughty games, and one was called Not Not Ginger. I don't know if you've heard of this. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, okay. So th this game, not much by way of rules, uh, certainly no refereeing. Your friends would just basically say, go and knock on that person's door, stranger's door. So this is not a good game, this is not a good game. But you, they would say, go and knock on that person's door, and then we'll all run away. And they'll just open the door and no one will be there, and it'll be hilarious. All right? uh, so that, that was the game, and they, obviously it wasn't funny, it was kind of disturbing people. But what inevitably that game just had people telling each other, like, go on, do it, go on, go on, go on. Uh, and, and that's how it would come about. You would kind of be daring each other to do it, right? Uh, and sometimes that's how we go astray. People are just... So telling us, oh yeah, go on, do it. Maybe it'll be fun. Maybe it'll be funny. Or, or you know, maybe they're just saying, oh, you can just forget. Say more seriously, you can forget the gospel. Just forget about it. Don't worry. You know, there were some posters on buses a while back saying God probably doesn't exist. So go on and enjoy your life. It's much harder said than that suggests, but done than that suggests. But you know, you know, sometimes people just tell you the wrong thing. But sometimes people don't tell you the wrong thing. Sometimes people are a bad example. So can you think, say, in class, maybe you're meant to be listening to the teacher, your friend is sat next to you, and they start talking to you. What are you tempted to do back? You're tempted just to talk straight back, right? Because that's what you do. Someone has given you a bad example, and you just follow. You don't even think about it. You just start talking, and there you are. And sometimes we're there just straight like that. We just see other people doing it, and, and we just go with it. And sometimes, maybe even more subtly, it just becomes part of the normal. You know, I don't know, like, if you've got brothers and sisters, then uh, maybe at home you might be sat watching TV or something whilst your parents are making the dinner. And then the parents say, dinner's ready, turn TV off, come on through for dinner. And nobody moves. And you could move, but nobody's moving, so why would you move? Like, you just do the same as everyone else does, because that's, like, the normal thing, right? And so, are any of those right? No, they're, they're, all, they're all naughty, aren't they? They're all wrong. <laughs> but some of them are more obvious than others. And sometimes I think maybe like that someone saying the wrong thing can lead to then bad examples, which can then lead to that being the normal. Now I wonder if that's a danger in our church lives as well. Sometimes we have false teaching, maybe not in this room, maybe out there. 
but it begins to influence our thoughts. And so then we bring it into the church and we're perhaps a poor example to one another. And then the danger is that it becomes the new normal. I think that some of that concern is what drives this rebuke to the church in Pergamon. Because there are people who have heard false teaching, Nicolaitans, Balaam, whatever the false teaching may have been. And they're then tolerated in the church, which means that there will be a bad example. There's some sort of immorality going on there as well. And if that continues to be the new normal, then the church may cease to be the church. And so Jesus says to them, repent, therefore, verse 16, repent. You know what repentance is? It's turning away, turning your back on that sin, turning your back on what we should have never had anything to do with, and turning back to Christ and following his example. You know, there's a real warning there as well. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, strange picture, sword of my mouth. It might sound like a strange affliction, uh, but it's uh, actually a, a picture that's been used uh, already. We read it in Roman, uh, sorry, in Revelation 1 as well. And if you think, uh, so if someone is really powerful, then they can do a lot with just a word, right? Elon Musk, he runs like Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. If he says, you've lost your job, you've lost your job. It just happens. If someone is a Roman emperor thinking of Pergamon, if they say off with his head, it's off with their head. Just a word from someone powerful enough. So Jesus, when his mouth is like a sword, he is the most powerful. He is the true seat of power in Pergamon. And to oppose him would be a fearful thing. And so the church needs to repent. And if we have listen to falsehood, if we have listened to false teaching or allowed sin to become normal in our lives, then we too need to repent, that we might turn away from the sword. May God give us wisdom to do so. But there is a promise there as well, so it's not all stick, if you like, but there is hope held out uh, to the people as well. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Some strange pictures here. And you might think, well, that's not sounding like a great incentive. I mean, hidden manna. So manna was like the bread that the people were given in the wilderness. But it wasn't necessarily bread. Like The word manna, I think, means what is it? So it's a hidden what is it? What is it? It's being kind of offered to them. So that's kind of uh, an, an enigma wrapped in a riddle and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, oh, and a stone. You might think, well, how promising is this kind of stone? And I thought it might be fun to find out. So, children, uh, you'll really want to help me with this one, I think. So I'm going to offer you two things. And you can, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give you two choices anyway. Uh, and you can, honestly, you can take whichever one you want. So, I've got here, I don't have hidden manna, but it's sometimes described as being like bread. So I've got some bread. So you can come up here in a minute, and you can take a piece of bread, and you can take a stone. All right? If you want. So bread and stone. Uh, so this is kind of in this verse. Jesus is saying, so those who overcome, you will give hidden manna and a stone. 
I don't have white stone, so I just got flint from the garden because there's plenty of that where we are. Uh, right, so you can either take that or you can take some sweets. Alright. So children, come up, you can choose your uh, your bread and stone or you can choose a pack of sweets. One bread, one stone, or one pack of sweets. Alright, come on. Let's see see what the people find most advice. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe check with parents before eating, especially with the stones. Um, it seems like we're pretty unanimous on uh, the sweets here. Okay. All right. Okay, so what a strange promise that Jesus would offer, like, hidden manna and a rock. Like, surely he could have uh, offered something more compelling than that. But of course, it's not a fair comparison, is it? Because I'm not ascribing any value. I'm not giving you any reason why these things would be valuable to, to you. If I, had, uh, if I could give them some weight of meaning, then maybe that would tip the scale. So what could this picture of hidden manna and the white stone be? Uh, after this build-up, this might be very anticlimactic. Uh, because I don't know, really. There's all sorts of mystery around this. Um, so I think the manner is probably a more straightforward picture, and we may kind of find ourselves kind of cluing in on some things that it can relate to. So manner was God's provision to the people in the wilderness, right? So they were going through, through a literal wilderness. They were going through great adversity, and God provided for them. So God provides for those who are persevering. Who are like um, who are travelling and going through hardship? So God will provide, and He does so in most prominently in our New Testament through Jesus, the bread of heaven. Right. So maybe just we could kind of begin to pull those sort of pictures together. I wouldn't kind of uh, conclude. I like, say that there's any one thing like this is it. But those sort of images, the provision of God, and we know that to be most notably in Jesus. So there is the manna, but there's also the white stone. Now the white stone, oh, I looked at two or three commentaries and they each gave different answers, so you know, thanks uh, commentaries. Some nice pictures, and then um, I, I talked to Chris, well I talked to the preachers group, Chris amongst them. Chris has something else which is quite involved uh, in the Old Testament, so go and speak to him if this interests you to get another view. I'll relay a couple from the commentaries, um, just uh, for your interest. So, one was the idea that um, apparently at this time stones may have had something inscribed on them as like a ticket. So people would hold it as a ticket to like a games or something like that, and it would ensure your safe entry uh, to, to whatever it was that you were intending to go to. So that could be one. Another, which I really like as a picture, is, is that apparently uh, in courtrooms, juries would be given white stones and black stones in order to pass their verdict. And the black stone would be to condemn, and the white stone to acquit. So that'd be a lovely picture, wouldn't it? Um, so I don't know. Could be either of those, none of those. Uh, take your pick. But what does seem most likely is that the stone is something that would have been used in at that time as a point of assurance. You know, to give you assurance of your acquittal or your entry into that thing, whatever it may be. It represents. 
your safety, your safe passage into that new state, that new place. And of course, if you have your ticket, or if you have your white stone of quit, or whatever it may be, then that has all the significance that your acquittal does, doesn't it? Or that the event holds to you. It is as, just as precious as those things. That's what it represents. And, and so Jesus, he, what does he promise us? What does he hold out to us as a promise? Well, I wonder if I uh, were to take Romans. Uh, I think uh, this is probably one of the most wonderful, one of the most famous articulations of this great hope. So Paul captures the words... Um, uh, from the Old Testament, but he relays them as the words of the church. He says in Romans 8, As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So that could be the words of the church in Pergamon, right? For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That could be the words of many churches. That could perhaps even be ours as we go through hard times. But Paul says no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the assurance that is being held out to God's people. May we know it. So whether we're kind of going through hard times, feeling persecuted, feeling our circumstances weigh on us, maybe when we're astray and we need to, a rebuke or we need to repent and come back to Jesus, then may we be motivated to carry on, to turn to him by God's great promises. And Jesus is that promise, really, isn't he? He is uh, the glory of heaven. It's held out before us, and we'll get that time and again through Revelation. And I could have quoted this verse in respect of any like passage, probably in Revelation, pretty much. But I just love this verse of the song, "The Sands of Time Are Sinking." So I, I'm going to quote it now in my message, because otherwise I won't get a chance. Um, so this verse it pictures uh, that moment where we are joined with Jesus in heaven as a wedding, where the church is the bride and Jesus is the groom. And it describes the response of the bride here and says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That land is held out before us as our promise through persecution through false ideas, whatever it may be, may we press onwards. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love to the church, that you write to them knowing their circumstances and spurring them on, commending them in their hardship. And Lord, we thank you that in your love you also call them to turn away from where they are in error, that they might endure and, be, uh, and persevere to be safely with you in glory. Lord, Help us to do likewise. Help us to endure whatever circumstances. Help us to look to Christ, the glory of Emmanuel's land. And so we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.